Welcome back to the Original Gangsters Podcast. I'm Jimmy Bucciolato here with my partner in crime, Scott Bernstein. Hey, now. And I just want to remind everyone to please follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Gangster Podcast. We're also on TikTok. We have a presence on YouTube and hopefully are going to get more videos up of, of the actual episodes. Hopefully have that up soon. Uh, we're going to have a Detroit-centric episode today. Uh, a little bit about the Italians, a little bit about African-American organized crime in Detroit, a little bit about Hoffa. And uh, let's get things started with a current controversy, <laughs> online controversy, uh, that uh, is, uh, was brought to my attention and trying to unpack this. And my colleague here, Scott Bernstein, would like to address it. You want to... Yeah, we, Start we, off. we need to do some clarification from from my you know from from my side of things as Scott Bernstein, uh, as the original Gangsters podcast, um, you know uh, Alan Gunnar Lindblom. Uh, I, I I will say he's a he's a friend of the show. Um, I I like him personally, um, but there has been some behavior on his part. Um, recently and honestly over the last handful of years where he's attaching himself to me as some type of uh that I'm vouching for him or that I'm telling him things that I'm not telling him or that I'm verifying him when I'm not verifying him uh and a lot of this is starting to blow up um on YouTube right now related to an interview he did uh, on a really big uh, YouTube platform called uh, DJ Vlad. And uh, he went on uh, in the last, sometime in the last five months, and uh, went into length uh, talking about how his great-grandfather was Joe Toko. Um, Joe Toko, for people that don't know, uh, not the Joe Toko from today. Uh, all due respect, Mr. Toko, we're not talking about you. Um, the Joe Toko from yesteryear, uh, 1938, uh, I believe he was murdered. He was the boss of down river, uh, was related in some fashion to black bill Toko. There's debate amongst historians of what exactly that was. We know that they were close enough to have, uh, Joe Toko, uh, was at the Zerilli Toko wedding in 1922. We know that, uh, Joe Toko, uh, spent... Um, some time as a, in his youth at the Toko house. Uh, so I know in the, uh, congressional investigations in the fifties, the hearings, uh, black bill was there and they asked him about Joe Toko and he said, there's no relation, but that doesn't mean that. Yeah. That, I mean, he, he had an agenda there, which was to deflect that. So I suspect there is a distant relationship there based on some of that other evidence you gave, but it's not like they were, I don't think they were like first cousins. But regardless, like the Lindblom Toko bloodline is not in any way, shape, or form connected to Joe Toko. Right. Uh, right. Nor do we really have any information now that connects them to Black Bill Toko. Um, I, I'll give a little bit more insight into, you know, uh, my due diligence on Gunner when he first kind of came on the scene. Yeah, give us some context ago. about who. But let who me just is. first tell people. So he go, so he goes on Vlad and tells this elaborate story about how his grandfather never talked about his father, meaning his grandfather's father, and uh, from the fact that 
he never heard his grandfather talk about his great-grandpa, he concluded that it was Joe Toko, that Joe Toko had been murdered, and then there was uh, some conversation in this Vlad interview that his grandpa held some animosity towards Black Bill Toko because Black Bill didn't avenge Joe Toko's murder. Um, and then he's talking about how Joe, Tur- Joe, Joe Toko was murdered over a, a, a dispute over a girl. Uh, and then when he gets called out on it, he starts to go on this kind of media campaign to backtrack uh, going on some people's podcasts. And he's, he's telling people that I informed him that Joe Toko was his grandfather. And frankly, that's laughable and just a blatant fabrication. Um, and I just need to be very clear. So Gunner came on the scene about five years ago. Uh, he reached out to me. Um, you know, my due diligence, you know, frankly, he wasn't important enough for me to, to really deep dive that much. I, I probably should have because in, in, um, in one way you could, you could say that I helped platform him. I put some of his uh, fictional writing on my Gangster Report website, I believe, in 2000. 17 or 18, and, and I uh, described him as Detroit mob, a former Detroit mob associate, and that was probably uh, way too loose uh, in my description of him. Um, and, I, again, I want to clarify that. So I had asked people who his grandfather was, people that I know uh, in the Toko family, you know, Jack Toko's family, Tony Toko's family, uh, as well as the Licavoli and Zerilli families, uh, to kind of figure out who, who uh, his grandpa was because he was making it seem like his grandpa was a maid guy or uh, his uncle was a maid guy or whatever. And, you know, what I was told was that, you know, Peter Paul Toko, who was his grandpa, um, was a member of a Holy Family Church. Uh, I was told he was a distant cousin. I think that's his great-grandfather, actually, isn't it? So isn't no, I Salvatore think Peter, his I grandfather? Think, Okay, or is it the maybe, other way around? Maybe. No, I'm confused. <laughs> I thought it was Peter Paul. That's definitely in his lineage, but I can't remember if that was I'm great. I'm pretty grandpa. sure Peter Paul was his grandpa. Okay, all right. Uh, well, I could yeah. I could be wrong. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. And uh, whoever his grandpa is, either Peter Paul or Salvatore. Uh, right. Uh, I was told that they were a distant cousin, that they were a very, very small time, a small time uh, bookie, or had made, you know, book uh, to a small degree. Uh, was not a made guy in any way. Uh, and that, you know, they all belong to some social club at Holy Family for World War II veterans. Um, I, I've never, I guess, I guess in my early description of him, when I, when I posted his um, work on my website, I described him as a Detroit mob associate, and uh, now I'm going to go back and I'm going to edit that because uh, that's not true. Um, and I just want to be very clear that my research and my reporting has never tied him to any activity with the Detroit Mafia. Um, I, you know, if, if, if he says he was doing collections for his grandfather, who was a bookie, you know, that's kind of, that's on him. Um, I know that he's made uh, some comments over the years connecting himself to some pretty big names uh, in the Detroit La Cosa Nostra family, uh, Tony Giacalone, Jack Toco, Tony Zerilli. And I, I, you know, I can't uh, endorse any of that. Uh, none of my research says that he ever did any work for any of those guys uh, or even knew those guys. So, you know, what I did, it, you know, in terms of backing him up or, or, or vouching for him in the past, uh, I, and I should have been way more clear about this because uh, I, I, know, I, I know that I was asked, at least on one 
show because Gunner's such a lightning rod uh, online, and he, he seems to constantly be getting into various underworld, or sorry, sorry underworld, various uh, mob tube world yeah. uh, skirmishes and, and beefs, and my name seems to get thrown out way, way too often, uh, and, and, I've, and I've told him very, very explicitly to stop using my name. Uh, I do not vouch for any of this. Uh, you blatantly lied going on these shows telling people that I uh, told you that your great-grandfather was Joe Toko and so forth. So I just need to make that clear. When I vouched for him uh, in the past in terms of, I know I went on Jeff Nadeau's show, they asked yeah. me about him. I said that he was a real criminal. And that's true. Uh, he did 14 years in prison for some really hardcore stuff like home invasion, bank robbery, uh, narcotics trafficking, and so forth, um, assault. Uh, but, and I said that his grandfather was a, a cousin or a distant cousin to the Tokos that, that ran the Detroit mob. Uh, I, I, again, in retrospect, I should have been more succinct in my wording. And, uh, that, so that's that. I mean, you know, I told Gunner I was going to come on this podcast and, and lay this all out there. You know, he kind of opened the door for it with, with his, you know, and frankly, his, his reckless use of my name over the last couple of years, um, because I've had some conversations with him because I've, you know, went on to dinner with him once or twice, uh, a couple of times, you know, he's trying to paint this picture of, uh, you know, my alignment with, with things that he's saying. And, and I just need to be very clear that that's in no way, shape or form the case. And, and, and frankly, you know, if we're going to, I don't know how much we need to go into this, but, and if he wants to, to make these claims and, and I know there's, there are people out there on YouTube right now that are putting together ammunition to discredit him, including this one video that came out last week or whatever that uh, he had to do some damage control on. Um, it, it, I, I just, if you, I'm not going to tell people that everything that he's saying is a lie. I don't know that. I can't co-sign any of it. For me, I've never seen any FBI reports, FBI surveillance logs, pictures. I've never talked to any of them. I've talked to so many people in, in uh, the inner circles of these people. And nobody recognizes his name. Nobody saw him around. Um, all these people are dead. Nobody can confirm it because they're dead. And frankly, you know, I guess this will be the last thing I'll say about it. And I'll let Jimmy chime in. You know, from someone who studies this, it, it just doesn't make sense in terms of protocol, in terms of time frame. Um, so I... I I just, I can't, I can't see Gunner running around with Tony Giacalone or doing work for Tony Giacalone at the time he would have been doing it. And the fact that he's, he's all the way on the east side in St. Clair Shores. Tony Giacalone is uh, based at that point out of the South Athletic Club on, uh, you know, 11 and Evergreen. Um, Gunner, I'm guessing, graduated high school in 92, 91, 92-ish. Yeah. Uh, you know, so by 96, Tony Jack was not talking to anybody. No. He'd been indicted. 
the last person he would be talking to was someone no. like and he like, had God. Tony Jack had guys on the east side and and so if they wanted someone like him to do any work, there would be like in The Godfather, there'd be so many yeah, buffers. buffers. <laughs> there'd be yeah. there'd be like a five or six guys yeah. in between Tony Jack and and why and, and what somebody would be on the, the street. Point of someone like Tony Jackaloni reaching out to a nineteen or twenty year old kid who's known. You know what I do know about Gunner is you know on the streets of St. Clair Shores back in the nineties he he was known as a as a tough guy as a yeah. as a hooligan uh, as a as a cowboy. Um, not someone that, you know, necessarily the Detroit mob, which is a very buttoned up organization that doesn't deal with cowboys, you know, why would they be utilizing a 19 or 20 year old gunner to do things? You know, just timeline, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so in addition to the fact that I've talked to people that were with Tony Jackaloni every day with Jack Toko every day and, 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 you know, they've never heard of any of this being true you know the one thing i did hear from someone that i trust um was that the one word that had ever come out about gunner in that world was stay away from him and that word had come from his grandpa um so it is what it is i just want to be very clear that i am not endorsing any of any of uh that narrative that he is spinning when it relates to uh you know, his connection to Detroit, Lacosa Nostra. Uh, he was a criminal. He did do 14 years in state prison. He did keep his mouth shut. Uh, he does have some lineage uh, to the Tokos. I know that that YouTube uh, video was saying that there's absolutely no connection. I don't necessarily believe that. I think all those Tokos from Terracini, whether they came into St. Louis or they came into Detroit, they were related in some degree. Yeah. But it, it, even that doesn't really matter. Yeah. The fact is that, you know, his grandpa, whether it be Salvatore or, or uh, Peter, Peter Paul, and I think those might both be his grandfathers. I, I don't know, one on one side or one on the other. Yeah. But uh, needless to say, none, neither of them were, were uh, made members of the Detroit mob. Yeah, I mean, I would say uh, a few things. Um, first of all, with the Joe Toko thing, just because I think our audience might be interested in, like, the, the actual accuracy of this. And, and I think... If you would have just spent a few minutes looking into it, you you would understand that it had nothing to do with this kind of some kind of vendetta or feud yeah. between. No, I think the what family. he's confusing is that Joe Toko was killed on the porch of his girlfriend's house. Yeah, right. When he was going for an afternoon tryst. Right. But it had nothing to do with why he was killed. No. That just happened. No. The people that killed him knew that he often would go over to this woman's house at twelve o'clock, twelve thirty. Right. And and have a little afternoon delight. And then go back to yeah. work. And I, and I, th- what I get into in my book, and uh, see what you think, um, is that Joe Toko was uh, had some lucrative rackets, including where he was close to Harry Bennett. So he he had a lot. He had his hooks in Ford Motor Company. No, I know that's where the beef and between that, the, Joe Toko <laughs> and Anthony Deanna, because right. Deanna wanted he wanted yeah. that <laughs> he wanted to take that over. And, and uh, everything I've read. Uh, in my research and and found and, and you know my interviews with uh, historians and uh, not just historians uh, academically but but law enforcement historians um, was that uh, the, you know this was a a feud over a Ford Motor Company stock. Oh yeah, that, sure, yeah. That Tony uh, stock options that that Tony Dana um, felt he was entitled to that Joe Toko wasn't giving him, and again this. This this narrative that Gunner's spinning, that um, there was some animus 
afterwards because Black Bill did not avenge Joe Toker's murder. I, I might have in in um, conversations or interviews pontificated and wondered why, but I've never said that this was an unsanctioned hit. In fact, I would say it's it was sanctioned. You know, Tony Dana could be the biggest sleeper in the history of the Detroit Mafia. Um, this guy avoids being kind of listed on charts yeah. and uh, avoids indictments. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, he was uh, an administrator, uh, a de facto consigliere. Uh, I believe he was a, a capo from 1937 until he died in 1984. Uh, he can, you know, they call him Tony Cars because of his yeah. <laughs> connection to the Ford Motor Company. Um, and I know from my uh, interviews with Tony Zerilli, um, popular belief uh, was that either his father, Joe Zerilli, the longtime godfather, or Black Bill Toko, um, the longtime co-godfather underboss, uh, had had sponsored Tony Zerilli in to La Cosa Nostra, but that's not the case. Uh, he was sponsored by Tony Dana. Um, so it shows you how close Zerilli and Toko Sr. were with Tony Dana, that in 1949, when Tony Zerilli is getting straightened out, it ain't his dad or his uncle that is sponsoring him. It's Tony Dana. Well, that makes sense because Tony Dana's uncles were the Gianola brothers. Right. Who were the the big shot mafiosi in the 1910s. Yes. And they, at that point, carried a lot more weight than a Toco or a Zerilli. The, no, they were the mentors. <laughs> yeah, Sam right. Gianola, who was Tony Dana's uncle, was Joe Zerilli's mentor. Right. Joe Zerilli got his driver. started as his driver and yeah. bodyguard. Yeah, so they would have... The fact that Tony Dana had, was a blood relative of those guys would have given him some stature. And, so, and, his, and his own father, Pasquale Dana, was murdered, murdered. in that war. In 1920, and then according to the Senate testimony and informants, Tony Dana, as I believe as a 17 or 18-year-old, killed Bloody John Vitale, who was yeah. taken over the city uh, as the mob boss for about six months. Right. Uh, after he had killed the Gianola brothers. Yeah, and, and Tony Dana's father, Pasquale. And, and so I believe Tony Dana was made, uh, he could have been made before La Cosa Nostra. Yeah, he was a young, I think he, he was Sam Catalanati, who was the boss of, of Detroit during Prohibition, might have made... Tony Dan as a teenager for doing that. Yeah. And so I think any any amount of like just a little bit of research into this, I think you you would have you, you Gunner could have avoided <laughs> stepping into this situation because he got the facts wrong. That's what uh, I mean. <laughs> uh, I mean, not just the fact that Joe Toko wasn't his great grandfather, but then right. he got the facts all mixed up. That's about what I mean. What happened uh went down with that 1938 gangland slain and then the af- you know, the aftermath of that. No, right. So just a little bit of research, I think he could have avoided that. And then I will say this, but, but it still it doesn't change the fact that he got everything wrong here. But the fact that when Joe Toko was murdered, Black Bill was away in prison, in prison for tax evasion. It's not just, I mean, like you said, we've all speculated that, find that curious. And is that just a coincidence or, or, would Black Bill have intervened in some way to maybe not? Uh, let's be clear. You know, so let's be clear about that. That could have been the juice that Bill Toko had yeah. in 1938. Whether he's behind bars or not, uh, I know it's not the same as it is today, where you know you could 
call people from prison. I'm not sure if they had prison phone calls in the yeah. 1930s or not. But, you know, if they were going to whack someone that was close to Black Bill Toko, I'm guessing they either knew that Black Bill Toko would be okay with it yeah. or they got some sanctioning from Black Bill Toko. Yeah. And, and by the way, let's not also pretend that relatives in the mafia don't yeah, kill, don't their, kill own, each other. their own relatives because <laughs> clearly that's, that's happened on a lot of occasions. So even well, if, you talk, know. Just talk about something a little bit more recently, even though it was 50 years ago, and we're going to, in a second, we'll get into something that happened 50 years ago as well. But, uh, you know, they weren't Italian. They were Greek, but uh, they worked for the Italians. Um, you know, little Pete Catranis um, got into a lot of trouble with the Jackalonis and uh, was allegedly stealing from them. And uh, the final straw was uh, when Tony Jack had, had sent Tony Jack's protege, Ronnie Morelli, to discuss, uh, dis uh, discuss this with, with Little Pete Catranis. And Little Pete Catranis ended up assaulting uh, Ronnie Morelli down in Greektown. And a couple of weeks later, uh, Little Pete Catranis was found in the trunk of his car in Bloomfield Hills uh, off Square Lake Road uh, with his hands chopped off. And if you read uh, FBI informant um, memos and uh, 302s and uh, what you'll find out that uh, Mike Catranis, his brother, who was also a, a big time uh, Detroit mob associate, uh, you know, he, he served his brother up mm -hmm. uh, for the Jackalonis to murder. And he was told that, you know, he had to do it or, or he was going to go too. Yeah. I think this has happened. Um, not a Detroit thing, but you look at what happened in the early 80s with the uh, Inzerillos. Um, they were the Inzerillos that got killed in South Jersey who were connected yeah. to the Cambinos. They were given up by their own relatives <laughs> because part of the deal Castellano made with Totorina was, Totorina's like, some of them have to die. Yeah. And so if you whack out some of them, we'll, let, we'll look the other way and let and some then, of the other and, ones and live. Just as uh, recently as, uh, as the 90s uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, you had a big mob war oh, that yeah. exploded uh, right. out of the streets in the 1990s, and uh, there were uh, three Ciccolini, uh, Ciccolini brothers. Yeah. One was in prison, two were on the street. The dad was in prison as well. And uh, the uh, youngest brother and the middle brother, or sorry, I think it was the youngest brother and the oldest brother, but the middle brother was in prison. The youngest brother and the older brother uh, fell on opposite sides yeah, of the war. that was crazy. And, and, we're, and we're trying to kill each other. Yeah, that was crazy. And in fact, one... Uh, maimed the other in an assassination attempt uh, in, in March of 93, the only mafia hit to ever be recorded by the FBI because there was a right. surveillance uh, video going on right in front of the diner where it happened. And then the older brother, Joey Ching's, you know, gunman ended up killing Mikey Chang. Right. And right now, 30 years later, Mikey Chang's been dead for three decades and Joey Chang, you know, uh, I'm quoting his own brother, Johnny, can't you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. So it, it it would not be it would not be unprecedented at all for Black Bill to sign off on a distant cousin, right. even <laughs> if he, even if the guy grew up you know close sure. close, close enough to be his brother or whatever. Right. And we do right. know. I mean, that it's probably my favorite archival photo that I've ever seen is that 1922 Zerilli Toko wedding. Oh yeah, there's so much to take out of um, that. Where Joe Zerilli is is marrying, um, I believe Finazzo. Uh, I believe at that point, Black Bill Toko had already married uh, Joe Zerilli's sister, um, and it's a it's a it's a it's a photo. It's a professional photo. They're all in tuxedos, and uh, you have first of all you have old man Zerilli there, 
you have Antonino Antonino Zarelli. Yeah. yeah. Joe Zarelli's dad. Right. That's the only picture I've ever seen yeah. of him. And uh, Joe Togo's in the photo. Sammy Sarah's in the photo. We're going to get to Sammy. I think, I think We're going to get Ch- to Sammy Sarah in a second when we talk about Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, I think Chester Lamar's in Chester that. Chester Lamar's in the photo. And I think Joe Togo's yeah. in that. Um, so whether whether he was there because they were related or it was some mafia shit, th- yeah. there, was some, there was some closeness there. But But back to the original point is either way, Gunner's family had nothing, <laughs> had nothing to do with either one of those, yeah. <laughs> either one of those tocos, right. either Black Bill's tocos or Joe Toko's tocos. Well, they, again, <laughs> it, it, barring that they were a distant cousin, which yeah. I find very possible. I, I think that's very possible, but that's, again, too. that's neither here nor there about... Right, because the situation is still not true. Yeah, right. yeah, the overall situation is not true. So that's our official stance. Um, you know, it is what it is. I probably should have... Spoken about this uh, earlier because this has been uh, brewing underneath the surface for for a couple years now, um, and and I'll just say that I've I've told Gunner just to stop using my name as some type of leverage point, uh, you know, in discussions to either back up his faulty history or back up, uh, frankly, claims that are just you know that that strain um, belief or or plausibility. Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned the Hoffa thing. You want to get into that? Yeah. We'll stick with the Italians and then. So there's, you know, there's a Jimmy Hoffa dig uh, on the horizon. Uh, probably next month. I'll be there with the History Channel. They're going to be Al digging. Al Capone's vaults. Right. I just keep on <laughs> I'm having, I'm, I keep on having images that this is going to be a repeat of 1986 and 1987 where everyone, I remember as a little kid, I didn't know anything about Al Capone, but I made my, my parents let me stay up to watch them yeah, I watched uh, it too. Uh, go into the vault that we all thought there was going to be all this money or bodies or, or <laughs> weapons skeletons. or, or uh, jewelry or diamonds. And at the end of the day, Geraldo uh, really hurt his uh, credibility as a journalist and, and his career as a talk show host by, you know, having this huge national television audience. And they opened up the vault and there was nothing there. <laughs> uh, right now there is this dig and there are, there are two sides of this. Um, there's kind of a, a war going on for credit uh, before they even find the body, which I find humorous. Um, that is funny. You have, uh, and I don't want to disparage either side of it because I like both of them. Uh, Dan Moldea, a good, great friend of the program. He's a mentor of mine. Fox News, who I've done a lot of work with. Um, they're both kind of in this uh, very public social media um, war, if you will, over, over who should get the rightful credit for, for finding Jimmy Hoffa's body uh, before we actually go and find Jimmy Hoffa's body. So. That's neither here nor there for what we're discussing. But, uh, you know, I've always said in my Hoffa research that, you know, my contribution um, is going to be separated from finding a body. And I know that's what everyone's been looking for for 47 years, 48 years, 47 years. Um, but I don't believe there is a body to be found, and it's just been one giant 50-year-long 50 50 wild goose chase. So I've never, in my 15, 16 years of reporting on this and, and uh, propping myself up as a, uh, as a Hoffa expert, uh, would ever presume to tell anybody where the body is. I've always felt like I could fill in some of the gaps around the mystery. Uh, 
A, find out where he was murdered. B, find out who murdered him. Um, and C, possibly, uh, this is my, this is my, my new endeavor, uh, track down the murder weapon. So in that, I've been doing some new uh, Hoffa research these last couple of years. Um, and, you know, we, we, we've been talking about credibility and, and Detroit mob history. And there's stuff, you know, even someone like myself has to sometimes reevaluate. And uh, I always, and, and, and I'm not completely jumping off uh, this opinion, but I, I'm open to now discussing alternative theories uh, that... Um, I've always subscribed to the belief that Jimmy Hoffa was killed at Carl Licata's house. Um, but now I am exploring the possibility that Jimmy Hoffa was killed at Lenny Schultz's house. And I, and I think that there is a, I don't want to say a good possibility, but a possibility uh, that even if Jimmy Hoffa wasn't killed at Lenny Schultz's house, that there are uh, what I would call, or there is what I would call, based on tips that I've gotten, a murder weapon graveyard in Lenny Schultz's backyard that I am working to, to get access to and, and, and dig up. And I'm told that uh, there, there could be a gun or possibly a rope uh, in this uh, burial ground that we could tie to to Jimmy Hoffa, and this leads. This was a long preamble to get to what I've what I wrote about recently is the belief, uh, dis, or I should say, dispelling the notion that has always been kind of a for for a lot of it, I think investigators and historians and people that have uh, chronicled this. It's always been this given that Jimmy Hoffa was shot in the back of the head, uh, took two bullets in the back of the head. I know Frank Sheeran. And the Irishman came out and said that he he pulled the trigger. Uh, we we fully fully <laughs> oppose that that notion here at the gang, uh, at the original Gangsters podcast. But I've been told by at least two what I would consider very informed sources that Hoffa was strangled to death. And one person told me um, that the primary Garreter was swinging Sammy Sarah, who we just referenced a couple minutes ago as one of Joe Zarelli's uh, brother-in-laws and was uh, at that 1922 wedding. Um, He would have frankly been elderly in 1975, which kind of made me cast some doubt on that assertion. Um, But uh, he would have been in his late 60s, early 70s, I believe. Um, But... If you if you see pictures of Sammy Sarah, he was a very strong, wide, um, broad-shouldered, uh, and he was a hitter. Right, and he, he was a hitter. Yeah. Um, so, and then I've also heard that it was a that there was some similarities to what happened with the Spilato brothers hit. And that there was a audience, um, people that were so eager to get rid of, in this case, Jimmy Hoffa, in, in the case of the Chicago outfit, uh, Spilatro, back in 1986, that uh, the higher-ups wanted to witness it. Um, 
so again, I, I heard that 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 there were multiple people there, uh, high-ranking people. Um, this was again one one person told me this, and that uh, it was. And I say in the story that uh, it was a rodeo, uh, that they had, it was multiple guys that were trying to strangle Jimmy Hoffa to death, beat him to death, and 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 he fought uh, every step of the way. So I have, um, I mean, we know that the Detroit guys, as well as just mafia in general, have strangled people before. We know they found bodies in trunks in Detroit. You know, usually we're talking about like associates, guys that weren't, you know, not other made guys, but guys who fucked up, <laughs> and especially the Jackalones, you know, to have them killed and someone strangles them. But Hoffa... Because of he was such a tough guy and a fighter, I just find it, I, I can't imagine it because it's a lot easier just to get up behind him. You know what I mean? Um, obviously, it's plausible because they, they kill people in all sorts of ways. Um, but it just seems like why, why take the chance of, obviously, if you got five, six guys around, you're going to be able to kill him eventually. The point is not that, oh, why strangle him? Because it's not going to work. Believe me, they would have beat him. They would have figured out a way to kill him either way. Uh, and we know, like, the guy you interviewed, Frank Collada from uh, Chicago, that circumstance where, like, the gun jams or something, and they find any, anything in the house. Right. <laughs> so they would have killed him either way. But, but why not? Why go through that mess? You know what I mean? Why, well, why I go through that I, aggravation where you just it, shoot him? If it was at Lenny Schultz's house and you wanted to avoid getting blood in the house... Yeah. And you didn't want Hoffa to walk into a house that was black, that was uh, blanketed in uh, plastic, plastic yeah, yeah. which would alert right. him that he was about to be killed. Right. Um, I don't know. The, the, the reason I give the Lenny Schultz, and this is besides the fact if he was shot or strangled, uh, the reason I give the Lenny Schultz theory um, a, 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 at least a smidgen of, of potential credibility is... The fact that they killed Harvey Leach, uh, uh, you know, um, the the FBI and Southwood Police Department and and everyone I've spoken to is convinced that 1974 they murdered Harvey Leach at Lenny Schultz's house. They called him to a lunch meeting. Lenny called him to a lunch meeting at his house that Tony Jacqueline was going to be at. And that house is literally four minutes from the Marcus Red Fox. Fast forward a year, Lenny Schultz is the person that brokered the meeting for Jimmy Hoffa and Tony Giacalone and Tony Provenzano. Um, if the Detroit mob felt comfortable using Lenny's house and using Lenny as a setup guy, and they had done it successfully a year before, um, and the house is, is, is a very short distance from the Red Fox, I, you know, in the same way that the Lakata house, the, there, there are reasons that I believe the Lakata house was, and right now I would, if I did, divide a pie up, I'd say 85% of me, 90% of me still sticks with the Lakata house theory. But uh, I am open to, you know, exploring more of, of this Lenny Schultz theory that's been brought to me. And, and I, I actually look, and I was talking to the History Channel about this because we're doing a, a, a big project together for this Hoffa dig. Um, you know, whether or not, Hoffa's body is found in New Jersey. Whether or not Hoffa was killed at Lenny Schultz's house, that's really, 
that's that's not a factor in whether or not the murder weapon is in Lenny Schultz's backyard. Uh, and the reason I believe that is that there is, well, I was tipped off to this and then I found it to be true, that uh, Lenny Schultz has a very, or Lenny Schultz had a very uh, sprawling backyard. Uh, he lived at 13 and Franklin, almost exactly at that corner. And uh, in the middle of the backyard, there is a pretty sizable patch of concrete in the middle of this grassy, this acreage and kind of these rolling hills. And there's this... Uh, and it's not for like a gazebo or anything. Right. Like there's, it's just there. It's just there. And I heard people that I trust tell me that Lenny was tasked with burying murder weapons back there. So even if it's not Hoffa, there might right. be... It might be Harvey, the, the Harvey Lee's yeah, murder Yeah, weapon. right, there might be something Or other there. murder weapons right. dating back to the 40s or 50s. Right. And Lenny Schultz was was tied into organized crime circles in, in uh, Detroit in the late 30s as an um, errand boy and, and, and driver for a lot of the Purple Gangers, um, which is how he got tied up with, with Tony Giacalone. And, um, so... I went and I, I talked to the people at the house and they're willing to give me access to their backyard. So uh, hopefully at some point this next year, I'll be able to get in there and uh, get some uh, uh, some equipment and uh, hopefully the History Channel will be footing the bill <laughs> and uh, we'll see what we can find. Well, let me say, I would, I think one thing is that I, I still think it's probably Lakata's house just because of what, what, what I've been told by the law enforcement. And we know that Lakata but, ended up dead. Right. On, on the, the anniversary. Six-year anniversary, so, almost to the minute. Yeah, it's conspicuous. Three o'clock uh, and in the afternoon. And, and the Detroit mob is so well-versed in what I call message murders. You know, hits that are done a certain way. Not for anything to, uh, in related to the public, but for, for, the, for the people in the, in, in the Detroit organized crime a group for that mafia organization. This is this is a statement to you. Yeah, I think. But I would say this. I think Hoffa would feel very comfortable going to Lenny's house, which is why, to me, you can't completely rule that out. Yeah, he was he was actually friends right with Lenny Schultz. I I don't have anything yeah. telling me that Carl Licata right. and if any, Jimmy if anything, Hoffa were friends. Lenny's house would have probably drawn less suspicion on his on his well, part. Well, well, only if you. Don't put into account what I've, my research tells me is that there had been a handful, if not more than a handful of sit-downs, or not, not, maybe not sit-down, sit-down might be the, the wrong way to describe it. There had been a handful or more than a handful meetups yeah. between Jimmy Hoffa and either Tony or Billy Giacalone that took place at Lakata's house. So right. Hoffa had been to that house to meet the Giacalones yes. in the previous couple of years. Hoffa lived... Uh, during the uh, winter months, uh, he lived in Bloomfield Hills. Uh, in the summer months, he moved uh, his uh, daily routine up to his cottage in Lake Orion. Um, either way, that would be considered west side of, of Metro Detroit. Especially at that time, almost all of the wise guys in the Detroit mob were yeah. east side. Right. Tony Giacalone had moved his headquarters to the west side in the 70s, and Carl Licata uh, was living on the west side, and, and Licata's house was about a, less than a, less than five miles from, from uh, yeah. the Giacalone, um 
headquarters and less than five miles from from uh, Jimmy Hoffa's uh, regular house. Let me ask you about the acoustics here. So I'm thinking about strangling him versus a gunshot because if anyone has ever heard a gunshot, it's really fucking loud. And in, if someone shoots someone in, in someone's house, if you're in that neighborhood, you're probably going to hear that gunshot go off. Now, that depends on the caliber. And, I, you know, I'm not like a firearms, uh, you know, ballistics expert here, but if, if they shot him in the back of the head with a 22, you probably wouldn't hear it. But if you shot him with something larger caliber than that, and we know the Italians usually like to use smaller caliber guns, right? It's not like fully and, auto or and, something. And we know that, at least in terms of Lakata, when he when Lakata died, um, his wife was there, Josephine, who they call Babe, Babe Toko, who's Jack Toko and Tony Toko's sister, who I'm told is still alive. Uh, and, and Babe Toko told the police and told the FBI that she went to go take a nap and that she heard a popping sound while she was sleeping and that she assumed the popping sound was the door opening. Uh, Have you ever been to a gun range? Have you ever been? So, well, I think mean, if you're asleep and... <laughs> it, it's like, it, again, it depends on the caliber. And if the it's sun, a little and twenty-two, then, and then the well, sun, Do we know what he was shot with? What, what no, the, I have it in my file somewhere. Then the son, uh, Nicky, uh, named after... Carlos' dad, Nick Licata, the godfather of the L.A. Mafia, uh, came home and, and found the body. I would say, I mean, someone can can check us online, I mean, on social media, let us know. But, you know, uh, I'm a gun owner. I've shot many times. Um, anything anything larger than a 22 caliber, I mean, you know. I, let me put this I, out Anything there. with like a 38, a 9 millimeter, anything like that. I think you would fucking hear it. It would be fucking loud as fuck have, in your house. I would love to have Nick Licata come on our podcast. Nick, if you're listening, reach out. I mean, I'm, be, I'm being completely sincere. I, I would love to hear uh, from the Licata family uh, if they believe that their father was murdered. Do they believe it was a suicide? Um, I've talked to a lot of people uh, surrounding this, and uh, I've never heard anyone tell me that it was a suicide. Um, including almost all of the high-ranking Detroit mobsters that I've interviewed. Um, w- w- whether they told me flat out that, that Carlo Cotta was murdered, I'm not going to say that, but they definitely scoffed at the notion that, that, uh, that, that, that he committed suicide. In fact, someone that was very, 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 very high up at that time, um, told me that they were with Carla Cotta the day before. How many mafia guys have committed suicide, by the way? That's not very common. Yeah, that, that, that they were with Carla Cotta the day before, and, and Carla Cotta was in great spirits and uh, did not show any signs of well, also being just distraught. Or Think about the psychological profile of mafiosi guys. They're usually very confident. Like, they, they don't seem like the kind of guys that, like, have that kind of despair. Now, there's some exceptions. Frank Nitti, I think, committed suicide. Yeah. Right, but yeah, there was and there was, was a guy in Los Angeles. He used to go to, right? pri- to, go to prison. Yeah, and he he had a brain tumor, I think. Yeah, and there was a guy in Los Angeles. Wasn't there like a high ranking guy that killed himself in L.A. Maybe way Mom- back in the day? Momo, right, something Adamo. like that. Yeah, well, in Detroit, so, in Detroit, I, I can think of another wise guy that did it, but it was because uh, he had brain cancer with Tommy Lewis, a machine gun. Tommy, oh yeah, right. One of the Corrado, an enforcer, one of the yeah. Corrado brothers, enforcers. He was Syrian. Uh, yeah, and I believe in the two thousand. It was like two thousand five or six. 
So it's not like it's never happened. But it, it, no, but Carlo it's not kind of didn't have cancer. Right. And he wasn't right. in financial. Yeah, and he, he uh, seemed to be in peril. He seemed to be in decent health and everything. Yeah, yeah, right. So, yeah, it doesn't. It does. Does it strike you as and if someone was about and to I'm commit suicide? I'm guessing if his dad was still alive, it wouldn't have happened. And right. His dad had died in 1974. Uh, in fact, I'm going to write something. I think I might have teased this, uh, but if not, I'm going to tease it again. I'm going to write something in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I've got my hands on Jack Tocco's uh, another piece of Jack Tocco's FBI file. It's so big. I'm getting them sent to me in like 400 page batches. And uh, there's a whole section there about the Detroit uh, mafia's response to Nick Licata's death and how they oh. had to send uh, a, a like a convoy out there uh, for for the funeral. A lot of ties between the yeah, two and yeah. San Diego, that whole right. Southern California corridor. So, but what do you think about this logistics of though? Like, is it makes sense to strangle someone rather than I'm saying you want to kill the person? And you don't want it messy. You don't want them to fight. Shoot them in the back of the head. That that can be messy. I see what you're saying in terms of like blood and things like that. But in terms of actually executing the person, they're dead. It's over. Shoot them in the back of the head. Does it factor into their decision that we're in the suburban, whether it's Lakatas or Lenny Schultz, these are suburban neighborhoods. A gunshot is too loud. It's too risky. Might draw attention. Some, what do they say, uh, what, in the Godfather, some pain in the ass bystander. <laughs> so so could, that have, right, could that have factored into, like, just get behind him and strangle him? And then there's no blood and no I noise. I know uh, Tony Z, uh, when he went to the feds, I don't know how. I, I heard him say two different things, so I'm not exactly sure what he said in his 302s. I don't have his 302s. Um but he kind of vacillated between him being shot or him being bludgeoned. Maybe both. I don't know. When I interviewed Tony Zerley, especially the last handful of, I mean, I interviewed him over about a year period. Um, uh, the last interview or two, he was not as lucid as he was mm-hmm. in the first couple interviews. So sometimes he would kind of mix things up. But uh, he pointed the finger at Tony Powell. Uh, that is who, from what I can understand, the FBI's official position without going to the public to make it official, but official within FBI circles and within the actual investigation, with, which is considered open, is that it now, in 2022, over the last, let's say, 10 years, the FBI or the investigators have come to the conclusion that Tony Palazzolo was the person that actually killed Jimmy Hall. So why did he say the sausage grinder thing? Was that just a, I mean. A subterfuge, just like with the Jackalonies, just telling 100 people 100 different stories. Same reason the Jackalonies would tell people as they were walking across the Skyway of the Renaissance Center. Like, hey, say, say good morning to Jimmy when they knew that he wasn't in the Renaissance Center. I, I'm fully on board with the, with the notion that, that Tony Powell uh, was, was the, was at least a very, very, integral part of the hit team if he did not pull the trigger or or uh, tighten the garret or uh, do the bludgeoning he was there when it happened who was he was he under tony dan at that point who was his captain at that point he, uh, yes, he was down he river been, wasn't he, he? would have been under tony dana but he, uh this is where some of the um, untraditional protocol um in, in detroit plays in uh pal was a downriver guy his dad was a downriver guy, but Pal 
came up uh, with the Corrados and the Vitalis in Greektown. Um, so Pal got his start as a driver and bodyguard uh, for Bozzy Vitali uh, and, and Detroit Fats Corrado. Um, by the 70s, I know that he was very close to the Jackalones. Uh, and I know when Tony Dana died in 1984, that territory was all bequeathed to, to Pal. And Pal had that downriver area from the early 80s until he died two years ago. Well, and also Detroit's not that large of a family. It's not, it's not, it's not impossible that one, a captain of one crew would ask another crew, give us one of your, just, give us one of your it's soldiers. It's interesting to, 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 I've never come across any documents showing me a direct connection between Tony Dana and Pal other than documents re- yeah. saying that when Dana died, Pal got that. Well, and it makes sense because of where they lived. Right. It makes sense where they lived. But what do you think? And explain to people that aren't from Detroit what Downriver is. It's, it's, it's a unique yeah, south uh, of section Detroit. Of, of Metro Detroit. It's kind of its own little world within a world. Yeah, I have a, I have a, I have a student who's, t- who's from Downriver, and uh, the student was telling me that, <laughs> that they have never been to north of, like, the yeah. campus. They've never been to Oakland or Macomb County. So it's like Detroit mostly <laughs> split up east side, west side. Uh, you know, the Italians uh, were east side, the Jews were west side. Um, but then there are this, this other pocket of, of Metro Detroit that's called Down River, which is a, about 10, 11 cities, um, very working class, uh, kind of factory towns, you know, the, when people call Detroit hockey town, they're really not talking about Detroit. They're no. talking about Down River. That yeah, area is obsessed yeah. with hockey and, and boating. I mean, right. which so it's the same thing on the east side, but it, it, there's some similarities. Not a ton of Italians. There used to be. There used to be. There used to be. Yeah, there used to be. Um, uh, Wyandotte. My, my grandfather would grow up in Wyandotte, so they called it Dago Town. Yeah. <laughs> but the uh, um, yeah the uh, and by the way, some of the earliest mafiosi. We're in from, Detroit, we're from that Florida. area. Yeah. Uh, all, a lot of those guys, uh, Gianolas, Dana. So, but what I would say about Tony Z, and you, you talked to him, I didn't, but I think there's a thing apart, on the part of a lot of mafiosi from, from that generation, and we've had some on this show, even guys who aren't from Detroit, who they have to, they want you to think that they were in on the Hoffa thing or well, that they knew about it because well, I'm such a big shot. Yeah. It's unconscionable. Well, it's true, which was, was really. At that point, he would have been entitled to know what happened. That's not, that's not him boasting or him uh, in, interjecting himself in something that he wasn't supposed to be involved in. I mean, 1975, his dad's still alive. I guess he had been passed over uh, in terms of, being tapped as the heir apparent by that point, but he still was considered the future underboss, even if he wasn't going to be the boss. He had been the acting boss uh, from you know the, the mid '60s until he went to prison uh, in the '70s. But would have, but would have Jack and the and the Jackaloni brothers, JT and the Jackaloni brothers, and his dad. Right. Yeah. But 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 he was already in Florida at that point. No, I, but I believe that Joe Zerilli knew exactly oh, what no, happened. I, yeah, no, I'm sure he and did. And I believe that Joe Zerilli was, agree- again, this is all, signed, speculation. It's it's all sign speculation on my part. But yeah, of course he signed off. But I'm saying I believe after the fact, first of all, I believe that the decision uh, was made 
as a, uh, as a consensus amongst a number of commission members that the contract was given to Detroit and the people in Detroit that put that contract out were, were Jack Tocco and Joe Zarilli, who were the people that were leading the crime family at that point, and they gave it to Tony Giacalone, who was the street boss, to coordinate it. Um, I also believe in the, uh, let's say, the cover-up aspect of, of this assassination or disappearance, what have you. That it was decided, again, a consensus, not with the commission, but a consensus amongst Detroit, uh, LCN, Jack Tocco, Tony Giacalone, and Joe Zarilli, that they were not going to tell Tony Zarilli what happened. That's what I, that's what I was going to ask Yeah, they you. were going to tell Tony <laughs> Zarilli a false story. That's what I, that's what I want to get at. Would they, would they tell him the truth? No, I don't think they did. <laughs> okay, right. So, but I think that he, so. he believed that they had, that, that he was entitled to that, and they, oh, yeah. knew, and they yeah. knew that he was entitled to that. So but they, they were, something. But they were worried that uh, yeah. he had a big mouth. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that big mouth got him in trouble uh, with, um, you know, the Frontier uh, skim, and eventually got him in trouble uh, in game tax. But you know what I mean, though. Out even outside of Detroit, a lot of these guys who hit the media circuit all say they know what happened yeah. to Hoffa. Mike Francis is saying that. Uh, right he goes and does these talks. He <laughs> right. says, "Oh, he's the only one who knows." <laughs> right. One of his friends who's in prison right now in New York. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and uh, Gravano, I think, yeah. has even said he yeah. knows. What. <laughs> uh, but you're and, right. And, Car- <laughs> and uh, um, Carlo Rizzi, a.k.a. Oh, yeah. Gianni Russo. Oh, yeah. Everybody knows it was this damn Breezy brothers from Staten Island. Yeah. yeah, so. And I'm like, nobody knows that. There's no such people as the Zambrizi <laughs> brothers. Right. You're, talking, you're probably talking about the Bergoglio brothers and messing their names up. Yeah. So That the, was my interaction with Gianni, uh, Gianni Russo a couple years ago. <laughs> there is this thing of, like, I, I'm such a big shot that, of course, I know what happened. Yeah. Off of, but you're right, Tony Z, that's, that's a different situation in the sense that he was here. He was in that environment, well, and he, he was, was, pri- was high-ranking. And he was in prison. If he, if he was on the street, yeah. he would have been directly involved in what happened. But yeah. he was in, I believe, Terre Haute, Indiana at that point. Um, well, that's, that's another question. What if, if, he, if he were on the street— would they have trusted him to carry this? Him and, <laughs> carry Mike, this out. him and Mike Polizzi were both locked up yeah. together in Terre Haute, I believe. Yeah. I think they probably still would have given it to the Jackalones, right? Yeah. And well, they, they would have let Tony Z quarterback uh, just, this, right? You know, take it with whatever weight you want. Tony Z, at the end of his life, was telling everyone that, you know, if he was, if he was out uh, of prison at the time, he wouldn't have allowed it to happen. But that's been dispelled by a number of... FBI documents and wiretaps where you can hear Tony's really bad mouthing Jimmy Hoffa and talking about, I know there was, there's one famous wiretap from the, from the Jackaloni's um, home juice uh, tap that was up and running for like the entire 1960s. It was like a, a legal wire that the feds put in there from like 1962 to like 1969. They had like seven years of these guys <laughs> talking. They knew they could never use any of it right. in court because they yeah. didn't get a, a yeah. authorized. FBI did touch. that all the time yeah. back then. And in, and in in that uh, I have all the transcripts. There's thousands and thousands of pages. But you know there was a conversation of the Jackalones and Tonys are really conspiring to rob Jimmy Hoffa in Florida, and rob <laughs> rob his wife. And Hoffa was out of town on union business. They knew yeah. that Hoffa had a safe in there. They knew that one of their guys, Tony Long, was banging Jimmy Hoffa's wife. Yeah. So they said, "Hey, uh, Tony Long, go go take Josephine out on the town in Miami or whatever." <laughs> Uh, and we're going to go in there and, and, and take a safe, and they did. <laughs> so this, uh, this belief that Tony Zerilli was, oh, yeah, you know, the good the, guy and was looking yeah. out for Jimmy Hoffa, and I think there was another um, conversation that they caught where, where, they, where Tony Zerilli was talking about doing physical harm 
to Hoffa. I don't think it was murder, but it was a beating or, or something. Yeah. Wasn't there some, didn't there really, in, they had to have some kind of sit down about the uh, extramarital affairs? Yeah, like but that someone? was Joe's really. Joe's, oh. Jimmy Hoffa, uh, I believe, came out of prison. He was, either before, he was either right before he went in or right when he came out. Uh, went to Joe Zerilli and wanted to have Anthony Samini, a.k.a. Tony Long, murdered for sleeping uh, uh, yes. with Josephine. Having okay. like an open affair with Josephine. And I think right. it had been going on for like a decade. Right. And uh, Joe Zerilli said, absolutely not. I'm not going to kill one of my guys for you, uh, especially since you out, you sleep with every skirt you look at. Well, yeah, he was a womanizer. Yeah. No, like, well-known right. womanizer, right? Right. Um, all right, so it, with a little bit of time we have left, you want to mention the... It's the 50-year anniversary this week um, of the, the big black mafia war that erupted in 1970, lasted until 1972. Um, there are uh, competing narratives about the body count. Um, you know, there, there have been reports in the free press at the time that you were talking about hundreds of people in two years, 200 people, I think they, they said. Um, I've heard uh, between 50 and 150. <laughs> Again, that, that's like talking about, you know, the kind of stuff that happens in, you know, in Europe or Mexico. what we see in Mexico with cartels or what we've seen in Canada the last 12 years. Um, that, I mean, that, that's like, that's biblical death when you're, you're not talking about 10 people or 20 people here, you know, in, in, in the triple figures. Um, so the reason that the, the war came to an end was that on April 10th, I believe, uh, 1972 or April 14th, uh, either April 10th or April 14th, uh, Henry Marzette, who was Detroit's first black godfather, uh, passed away uh, in Highland Park uh, of a uh, rare kidney disorder um, that took his life at 45, I think. And, uh, and, and the bodies stopped dropping almost immediately. Um, Marzette... We talked about him last uh, last show. Yeah, with Doc Davis. With Doc Davis. Uh, Marzette, when, when you were talking about uh, African-American organized crime in Detroit um, in the 1960s, there was really only one person, and, and his name was Henry Marzette. Uh, they called him Blaze. He, I, know the, I think the, one of the best ways to describe it is, and I think I said this la uh, last week, you know, if you, if you take the movie Training Day and you take the Alonzo character, and, you know, and you do kind of a sequel to Training Day where Alonzo goes to prison and then comes out. And instead of being uh, a cop, or I should say, instead of being a gangster parading as a cop, you're just now a gangster. <laughs> yeah. And you've taken over the streets and, and there's, no, uh, yeah, there's no veil of legitimacy or, you know. So uh, Henry Marzette was a uh, high school football star, um, I believe uh, war hero. Uh, had won a Purple Heart in Korea, uh, joined the Detroit Police Department in the early 50s um, after he, he got out of uh, his service in the military and was a superstar. Uh, went in the narcotics unit and began racking up arrests at a uh, prolific pace. I think he was the first or the fastest to 100 callers in the history of the, the narco unit at that time. Um, and he was such a good drug cop that he started dealing drugs himself and shaking down all the drug dealers that uh, he was arresting. And him and his partner, and they ended up getting busted, I believe, in 1957 or 58, 56. I'm not exactly sure on the time. Uh, did a really short prison stint. I think he only did two or three years. 
came out uh, 5960 and um, opened up shop on on uh, what became the Black Mafia in Detroit. And uh, he, he headquartered out of uh, the Safari Room, a lounge on Livernoy. Did a lot of business uh, with Italians. Did a lot of business uh, in the Golden Triangle out in Asia. And... Um, was he, he was one of those guys, too, going right to the source? Yeah. And uh, that's really what led to the war. Um, and it was a two-year war, uh, summer of 1970 to the spring of 1972. And it all started with uh, what Henry Marzette dubbed Little Appalachian, um, uh, you know, and, and another homage to the Italians from, from, the, from the black uh, OG mobsters. Um, so in, 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 I believe June of 1970, he held a summit, uh, at the 20 grand hotel, which was attached to the 20 grand nightclub supper club, which was owned by, uh, infamous, uh, black, uh, numbers kingpin named Eddie Wingate, fast Eddie, Bigfoot Eddie was uh, very closely tied to the Jackalones and, uh, also uh, tied to Motown. All the Motown acts uh, would, would perform at 20 grand before they went on the road. And uh, there was a, a summit of about 30 drug dealers uh, at a suite at, at the uh, 20 grand. Marzette called them all there and uh, proposed a consolidation and a, uh, a move away from the Italian supply line and that uh, he could you know, give them their own supply through... Uh, Asia, as opposed to the Italian supply line that was going through Jimmy Quasarano, yeah, Papa Riccio. John Priziola, Sammy Finazzo, that was all coming through Europe. And uh, things went south almost immediately. He could not sell the room. And actually, right after he got done with his pitch, um, a number of, of, of people that he had brought there felt like, A, he was proposing, you know, mass suicide <laughs> and think, thought, thought there was some angle for him, which there probably was, yeah, some right. angle that, right. that he was uh, trying to um, use them as fronts or, and the, you know, the, the guy that was the most, um, <laughs> the, the guy that was most stern in his objection was this new, uh, new old steel, they called him the rusty nail. And he was just this wild card um, West side drug boss who had a verbal altercation with Marzette at the summit and um, went maybe <laughs> possibly left the 20 grand and, and took a beeline to, to Jimmy Quasarano and Papa John Priziola. Yeah. Uh, and, and then also aligned with a, uh, uh, an East side drug dealing organization known as the East side 12. And uh, they went to war uh, like, Within days, Steele didn't last very long. This was June of 1970. Steele was dead by the end of August, uh, was killed at La Player's Lounge, which is, uh, which is just a staple in, in the black underworld. Uh, Where's at that those at? times. I believe it was on Joy. Mm. Uh, so that's West Side too, right? And it was uh, the site of a number of notorious gangland hits, as well as... Uh, Doc Powell, Doc Holiday Powell, um, of the Murder Row group, 
was killed there 10, uh, 10 years later. So uh, Marzette um, went to war with the Eastside 12 and, and Newell Steele, and the war got a, a lot of headlines in the Detroit papers. Um, there was something that was called the Flag Day Massacre that happened in the summer of 1971 where there were eight members of Steele's crew in the Eastside 12 that were killed in a, kind of a mass execution at a, at a motel. Um, for much of this time, Marzette was out of town. Uh, Marzette was a, uh, had someone that by that point fashioned himself as kind of a, um, international soldier of fortune, uh, crime boss, spent a lot of time in South of France. Marzette was at yeah, that Marzette, time? Yeah, South of France, Italy, Bahamas, Jamaica. Um, and he was also talking about innovation, I mean, at the cutting edge of innovation when you have that kind of money at that time. He had a, a portable dial, uh, dialysis, which... Even now, it's difficult to get. Yeah, right. Uh, but he had a, a rare kidney disorder. Um, and that whole time that he was at war, uh, he was dying. Uh, but he was able to extend his life by purchasing this $30,000 a year contraption from Ford Hospital. Um, so that'd be like today, you know, be like $150,000 a year contraption of some sort. That's interesting, his dedication to, the <laughs> right. to his uh, vocation. Yeah. So uh, he he was able to avoid the bloodshed by just not being in this country and having his people do his bidding, specifically um, guys like uh, his main enforcer, this guy, Jimmy Moody. They called him Jimmy the Killer. And, uh, you know, this guy had maybe hundreds of bodies himself um, dating back to the 40s and 50s. So when Marzette dies, I, I think it's interesting, the sociology of black organized crime, but how... It's different from, you know, other groups, but does his organization decentralize and everyone goes their separate ways? Kind or is of, there, like, is there remnants of, of it? Like- it was like a, it was a, it was like a hybrid where Eddie Jackson oh, right. kind of steps in and reformats. And it goes from a very violent organization and a very uh, in-your-face, headline-friendly organization to a group that was essentially nonviolent and trying to operate quietly in the way that Doc Davis and the DFG did. Okay. Uh, and it wasn't until the late 70s, so there was about a five-year period there where things calmed down, and then the late 70s you got Murder Row and you got YBI, who were, right. you know, uh, very violent. Very, very, very conspicuous, very violent, yeah. very in your face. So, so but even, even after this, I mean, even after Marzette tries this, you know, form this consortium, it doesn't work. And even though he was going right to the source, going to, at that point, Southeast Asia, I think his guys were still, some of those guys were still getting supplied by the Italians yeah. because... At that time? You, you want every, you, nobody says, like, well, we're not going to, like, you take as many, uh, you know what I'm saying, like, pipelines as you can get. They need to the streets, That's man. what I mean. They can have right. droughts. It doesn't matter right. where it's coming. That's where the right. plug That's is the plug is right. the plug. That's what I mean, right. So so even even then, this idea of, like, Frank Lucas and these guys could block Circum- out the, Ita- right, the that, Italians. That they were, still, they were still buying some of it from, from the Italians. Yeah. Not as much. They weren't the sole suppliers. And then, but- and, and then Marzette, you know, he had gotten kind of ahead of his, his skis where it was like, 
this 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 war had become this monster that he had created and he, he couldn't tame or or pull back and i know that uh there was a, a meeting with him and Vince Persante um who legendary were, who uh, legendary Detroit crime buster. gangbuster yeah and uh Persante came to him and like dude you, this is so out of hand like you need to reel this in and he and he was telling Vince like telling Vince Persante based on some of these uh, free some of this free press reporting from back when he died Howard Cohn uh has, did a great job uh the former free press writer of um chronicling this and I actually went to high school with his daughter um and he was telling Persante, he's like, there's nothing I can do now. Like, yeah. It's so out of control now right. that even if I try to do something, yeah. it, it's like pissing in the wind. And <laughs> what he did try to do was he killed, or not try, he did do, he ordered hits on his two top hitters. <laughs> Bobby Martin, who they call Bobby the Bopper, and Jimmy Moody, who they call Jimmy the Killer, were both murdered in late 71. Yeah, because they were and out then, of control. start 1972, he's thinking he can come back to Detroit and it's all, uh, you know, look, I whacked my two top guys that were whacking all your guys, <laughs> and it didn't stop. There were another half a dozen murders of Marzette, guy, or Marzette lieutenants in the three months leading up to Marzette's death. Wow, it's pretty bloody. I remember uh, Persante, uh, he, he was legendary Detroit uh, gangbuster. Oh, he's the Michigan State Police, he right? was deep. No, he was DPD, and then he was Michigan State Police. Then he stayed. So one of the first times I talked to Scott, I, it's funny how I remember this. When we first became friends, one of the first conversations I had with you, and you said you had interviewed Persante, who, when you're starting to do this research, he, he looms large, night, yeah. right? So I was impressed. I was like, wow, you've met him. That's really cool. And, uh, you know, I was like, I bet he has a lot of documentation, a lot of documents. It's just funny how I remember this. You're like, yeah, because you had been to his house, I think. Yeah, and you're like, yeah. Lansing. Yeah, you're like, yeah, he has a shit ton of shit. <laughs> I, just remember, I just remember the way you put that. I was like, well, I could imagine like the stacks of like, I wish I, I never got a chance to meet him. Cause, and he, he lived a long time. He only died recently, yeah, he, he right? He lived uh, to, uh, from 1913, or sorry, 1919 to 2013. So he was 93. Yeah, yeah he was an old dude. So he had a shit ton of shit. <laughs> I wonder yeah. what happened to all that. His, I hope his family I hope, archived I, 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 it. One of these days, I hope I can get in contact with his wife or his son. Yeah. Um, I remember telling him that at the time when I interviewed him. Don't throw the, don't torch the stuff. I interviewed him a couple times, uh, a couple times on the phone, and then once I went out there uh, to Lansing, because that's where he was when he was with Michigan State Police. Right. And he kind of settled out there in the 70s. But he started off in DPD as, like, the head of the OC unit um, from the 40s all the way into the 60s. Then the 60s, I think he he, he moved over uh, in the mid-60s to MSP. Yeah, I think in terms of law enforcement, probably no one knew more about yeah. Detroit organized crime, whether it was the black dudes or the Italians or whatever, than him for that period And then it's also time. interesting, you know, you know, to talk about, like, you know, uh, logistics of law enforcement or whatnot. You know, is it a coincidence that he was Italian? Was it a coincidence that Lou Fischetti, who, you know, again, a great friend of the, to the show and got such a, a tremendous amount of Lou, uh, tremendous amount of respect for Lou Fischetti. Lou Fischetti ran the Detroit FBI OC unit for 25 years. Arena is Italian name. Right. Too. So I'm saying like, and I believe Lou Fischetti's great uncles or cousins were the Fischetti brothers that were connected to Capone. Mm. Mm. Um, Rocco and, and Charlie Fischetti. So I think it, I think it's, uh, I mean, we'll look, even in the Sopranos, right? Yeah. The, yeah. One of the, uh, but no, the head of the unit 
Right. Is it Italian? Who's Italian? Well, look at Giuliani. Look yeah. at, like, yeah. I mean, uh, Giacalone, not the Detroit Giacalones, but the Diane prosecutor Jack, who went, right, who went after Ghani, right. All right. Well, this was a fun episode. So um, please check us out on social media. Go back and look at some of our other episodes. If you like the African-American OC stuff in Detroit, we did our episode on Doc Davis, The Beast, Leighton Simon. We had that episode. We're going to have more episodes on that topic coming up. Yeah, let's tease them what we got in the next couple of weeks. And um, by the way, the Hoffa stuff, too. If you like the Hoffa stuff, Detroit Mafia, look through our archives. A lot of episodes on that. And we've got more Detroit, uh, the yeah, African-American stuff, so right? We have, we have stuff, an interesting right? Italian one coming up uh, called, uh, we're, we're going to be interviewing some people from a really popular podcast. Oh, right, right. Called right. Deep Cover. Yep. Uh, That's coming up the soon. the first two seasons uh, are, were Midwest-centered. Uh, first one was based in Detroit and Miami. This next one's based in Chicago. Uh, and then we're also going to be doing an interview with Gerald Chambers, uh, who was <laughs> kind of fits into two... Uh, iconic categories when you're talking about Detroit, uh, when you're talking about crime or sports, he can he can uh, fit nicely into both. Gerald Chambers was one of the original Kronk uh, professional boxers, uh, was was the was one of the original uh, fighters on the Kronk roster, uh, helped build the Kronk brand, uh, was 22 and two as a professional fighter, uh, fought uh, you know on national television cards all throughout the late 70s and early 80s. ESPN, HBO, Showtime, uh, so forth and so forth, um, and then graduated to being a drug kingpin <laughs> uh, after his boxing career was over with. And by the early 90s, he was the biggest wholesale cocaine uh, dealer in, in Detroit, or if not the biggest, the second or third biggest, and uh, ended up, frankly, getting a, a raw deal uh, in, his, uh, in his case, uh, he was sentenced to life in prison for a, for a nonviolent drug offense. And as uh, a lot of that in my researching and talking to Daryl had to do with, you know, a vendetta that the FBI had against him because uh, Daryl wouldn't give up uh, bigger names, specifically uh, well, Tommy, let's, let's, Tommy Hearns. And, 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 you're giving, you're giving well, him the whole show right now. I'm not giving up the show. <laughs> Daryl's going to come and tell us. This is just Scott Bernstein saying okay. Daryl's going to come and, and give the whole, uh, give the whole uh, story from, from top to bottom. So. You know, because he wouldn't give them who, who they wanted, these you know higher profile names. Um, you know they jammed him up pretty good, and now Daryl's out living his best life. He's been out for uh, you know coming up on a year, and uh, has you know really uh, started to write his second chapter. And we're excited to have him in studio this month. Yeah, that's gonna be fun. All right, Jimmy Bucciolato, Scott Bernstein, out. Out.